Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. Today we've got a really interesting show. And you know, it plays right into my wheelhouse. It's all about mental health. We've got Dr. Julia Britz. She's a licensed naturopathic doctor. She received her training for Bastard University in San Diego, California. She specializes in supporting people who are struggling with mental health issues, such as OCD, eating disorders, psychiatric medication, tapering. Her passion for working with individuals suffering from these lonely conditions is that she, too, was a hopeless case but she got better. She was dismissed by doctors and she was told over and over there was nothing else she could try beyond pharmacology. And she was so inspired to deal with her OCD, she created myocddiary.com. And that's a site dedicated to documenting the daily life of OCD and related disorders. And she wrote on that site, she started it in the summer of 2009 and continued writing on that site until January of 2021. That's a huge commitment. Through that project and some holistic therapies, she began to find new levels of wellness. And in 2014, did a TED Talk called My OCD Diary, An Imperfect Story. She utilizes natural and integrative modalities, and we're going to talk about those to help people with mental health. Most recently, she was the director of the naturopathic medicine at Alternative to a Med Center in Arizona, and now practices telemedicine. So, Julia, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Well, you know, OCD is an issue that I help clients with over the years. And most times it relates, in my experience, most times there is a a portion of it that relates to anxiety. And the anxiety is, we can deal with that pretty effectively. But the OCD is a more complex problem. And I have seen how difficult OCD can be to deal with. So what's your history with OCD? OCD for me was, um, probably the biggest challenge I've ever dealt with. And uh, I think if, if someone were to tell me like, hey, you know what, you got to go back and do it again. I don't think I could. Um, I had been diagnosed with severe OCD when I was around age 20. And that's pretty common. I, I think you probably see that too. It's just like an age where everything's changing, like hormones and going to college, all that kind of stuff comes up. And so I didn't really know what was going on, except I knew that I was different. I'd always felt like I was different. I had anxiety when I was little and I was always perfectionistic and a people pleaser, <laughs> um, really just wanted everyone to be happy, felt overly responsible for everyone else's emotional state. And so for me, it wasn't that much of a stretch um, for it to develop into full-blown OCD. And mine looked pretty classic. You know, I love fear of germs and um compulsive behavior that was fairly obvious in terms of like me tapping with my finger on the counter or, you know, walking and then spinning around a certain number of times, walking, spinning around a certain times, things like that. So that's why it's uh, very close to my heart and treating other people with it because I understand how awful it can be. So when you started that, that diary and back in 2009, 
Was it, were you doing it as a therapy for yourself or as education for others? Definitely both. I, I remember when I first started it, I did so because at that time, there really wasn't much you could see on YouTube or in the internet space besides some of the drier things you could read on OCD. Um, most of the stuff I had found was was accurate. It was from, you know, like mayoclinic.com and all that, just explaining what OCD was, but I didn't really know what it looked like. And so I thought, you know what? I bet other people don't know what it looks like either. So I decided that, you know what, if I'm going to go on this journey, I'm going to try to figure it out. I'm just going to sort of document it. And that way I can tell other people like what's working and maybe what didn't work for me. And eventually I started posting pictures and then I started with video um, because I wanted people to see that, you know, I was a normal looking girl and I wanted people to know like, hey, you, you can be anybody and dealing with this stuff. It doesn't, you know, afflict only certain people. And over time, I got more and more like amazing support. And that's when I was like, wow, this is actually pretty healing for me to write this too, not just for me to share it. So it was a pretty cool experience. Well, you know, you mentioned that you were, when you were younger, you did have some anxiety and you were a perfectionist. And that in itself, you know, can create a whole level of complications because I'm sure you would agree with me today. There is no perfection. It, right. it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times with perfection, people get the shoulds and the musts. Well, yeah. I should do this. Well, I must do this. Well, we, and then the shoulds and the musts have these two friends. And I do not like those people. They're the <laughs> shame and blame. Well, yeah. Lee, you didn't do it. It's all your fault. Things didn't happen that you wanted to happen. You know, the shame and the blame. Oh, awful. And I think when you're in that OCD state, your brain is ruminating. You're thinking things over and over and over. And the more that a lot of clients have reported to me, the more they think about it, the more that they just can't stop. Were you in that situation? Yeah, I I remember that's probably when I discovered that I had a big problem was when I was unable to not just stop the thoughts, but stop the compulsions. Um, I was actually standing by a sink at my dad's house and I started having this obsessive thought about um, being haunted by a ghost and I could not get out of my head. And I was washing this glass and 20 minutes later, I was still there doing it. And I thought, okay, like I would like to pull away, but I can't. And I look around and there's no one in the kitchen with me. And that's when I felt so alone. I was like, I'm here by myself and I can't even handle myself. I can't do anything. Um, and so I'm trying to look and blink a certain number of times. And that's when I realized that nothing I'm doing makes any sense. And yet I have no control over it. Um, so that's when I started thinking, I think there's more than there's more than just a quirk here. There's probably something that I think was maybe, I thought it was normal to a certain degree growing up like that, just because I'd always been that way. I just thought other people were better at hiding it than I was. And so when I got older and it became a little bit more hard to handle and I realized I'm not keeping up with everybody hiding it so well, um, I thought, okay, maybe this is actually a disorder. Um, and that's when I realized I had to do something. I was too scared to get treatment for a long time, but I realized I had a problem. 
So you said you were too scared to get treatment. Was there a little bit of the stigma around admitting that you had a mental health issue that played into that? Oh, absolutely. I was I was married at the time and I was so scared to tell my husband. I didn't know what he was going to think of me um, or what that meant for our relationship. And so it was it was a very difficult conversation. And luckily, he was very supportive. Um, and he did ask if I was going to go to therapy or what I thought I was going to do. Um, so he wanted me to get better. He wanted me to feel safe. And he did actually help the best he could. He would sort of become an enabler at times because I would want him to be part of my compulsions. Like, oh, no, no, don't touch that. I already cleaned that. Can you go wash your hands real quick? Uh, that kind of thing. But um, it was hard to find the balance. But we, we tried our best. And I think the stigma was something that I don't fully believe I recognized for a while because my self-esteem was so low. I don't think I understood how much the stigma of having OCD also affected me because I just felt generally bad all the time. Um, so it took a while to remove some of those layers of, okay, self-esteem, got to work on that. I have a stigma issue, which means I'm absorbing this as part of my identity. Got to work on that. Um, I identify way too much with this illness. So I got to work on that. And it was a case of pulling all that stuff back and it took a while. So what'd you start with? So the first thing I did was I went to my school therapist and she was really sweet, had no experience in OCD whatsoever, but she did have experience with CBT. So we spent about eight sessions just working on me admitting it and accepting it. And so we did that. Um, a few years later, I finally found a therapist who said, look, we can try ACT or CBT. They're both relatively similar in the literature in terms of how successful they are for treating OCD. So it's a case of what resonates the most with you. And he explained them both to me. And I picked ACT because it sounded a little bit more doable. The thing that he said that made it sound doable to me was it's not about stopping your behavior. It's just about you accepting the thoughts and learning to live with a noisy neighbor, if you will. And I thought, okay, that sounds more doable than just trying to stop all this because I don't think that's possible. So we worked on acceptance and commitment therapy for about a year, and it was very helpful. I think it probably got my symptoms down um, by maybe 25%. So it took the edge off quite a bit. Um, and then I found a doctor of naturopathic medicine, and she said, you know, we can work on the OCD. And I was like, oh, no, no, I, I do therapy for that. I'm okay. And she's like, no, 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 we can, we can work on OCD. And I said, okay, um, sure. I just didn't think it was possible. It was really hard for me to believe it was possible. So we ended up doing some lab testing and we figured out I had some underlying conditions like a thyroid problem, low progesterone, things like that. Once we resolved that, it seemed like the OCD got significantly better. Um, and somewhere in the midst of that, I had tried um, psilocybin mushrooms as well, and it didn't cure anything by any means, but I did feel some symptom relief for a few months, which was enough for me to show my brain, hey, look, you're capable. Your brain is capable of not living this OCD life, which helped motivate me to stay in therapy, and it motivated me to keep looking for answers. Well, you know, that motivation is the hardest thing to come by. 
Yeah. And what, once you can get that motivation, then you can start to build and build up some steam. So it, it's interesting because I've learned the foundation for my brain is my diet and my sleep. Mm -hmm. And the, I learn the connection between the brain and the body. It can't, it's, it's one, you, whatever's going on in the brain, the body's keeping score up. Whatever's going on in the body, the brain's keeping score up. It's really that interconnectivity. And with OCD, most of the people that I've worked with that have it, they also have some anxiety or some depression or all three. Have you experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, to me, I think of it almost like a tree and I think of, I visualize these roots and then this tree's coming out of the ground and each branch is something related to the same problem. So one of the branches is an anxiety branch. One's OCD, one's depression, one's attention deficit. Um, one is, you know, panic disorder, et cetera. So they're all kind of different flavors of the same kind of internal problem. And to me, I actually don't really think of OCD as a disorder. I think of it more as a symptom. Um, and the reason being is that if you take 10 people with OCD and line them up, they're all going to have maybe a different underlying cause for that obsessive compulsive stuff. Um, whereas if we line up 10 people with strep throat, they all have the same bacteria causing strep. So it's an easy thing to treat and diagnose. We understand the cause. Um, however, I found that OCD, it seems to be more symptomatic because for one person, it could be related to nutrition or maybe food intolerance for someone like me, it was more, you know, thyroid stuff. Um, so the question would be, okay, was it really thyroid stuff then? Or was it really OCD? I think it was more the root cause condition is really what the problem is. So I, I hope that makes sense. I kind of scroll around it. <laughs> no, it does. Cause what you're saying is, is, is that, you know, it's what the root cause may manifest as OCD. It may manifest as some other kind of phobia, but the root cause is what you've got to get to. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you wrote that blog for over 10 years. And how do you feel about that? I mean, it's still out there. It's still online. I mean, is that part of your legacy? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I still pay for it to stay up because I still, I still think that it's, it's something that's relevant. Um, there's so many good things out now, which is amazing. Like more people are writing their stories and creating YouTube channels and things like that. Um, but I still will find that occasionally I'll have a patient dealing with some something and I'll say, you know what? I wrote a post about that exact same thing. And then I'll be able to like refer them. And that's important because there's a part of me that wants to never think about OCD again. And there's a part of me that treats it and I want to help people get through it because I get it. So occasionally there's things I do forget that I've been through. And so going through it again a little bit is helpful for me to connect and say, hey, you know what? I've been there. I get it. We're going to get through this. So are you afraid that OCD is going to tackle you again? I used to be. Um, in the first few years, I was very scared that it would just come back. Um, as insidiously as it seemed to come on. 
But I don't really get afraid of that anymore because now I feel a lot more empowered because I'm like, okay, cool. I understand there were certain things that created that symptom picture for me and I treated it. Um, which means that if anything comes up again, I just have to do the same exact thing. Dive in, do a little investigative work, figure out what's going on. Why is my body talking to me that way? And I think OCD is a very protective mechanism, which I know sounds kind of weird, but for me, I think anytime we have anxiety or OCD, it's because we're scared. And if we're scared, the body in its own weird way is trying to get us to become hypervigilant and a little bit obsessive so we don't miss anything. So we're careful. So it's our own body's weird way of being like, hey, be extra cautious. <laughs> um, so I have to question, well, if that were to come up, why am I being cautious? What's going on? Um, but I've done so much work as well. And I think that's part of it. I think doing the underlying work was great, but also the therapy was so helpful. So if I'm, I'm having a bad day, I know I have enough tools to kind of manage it. That's great. I mean, that really is. And that's a great message for people to hear. Just because you're suffering from OCD today doesn't mean that you may be a year from now or a month from now mm, that, it, yeah. that, that it is something that can be beat. Because I think the people that come to the Brain Performance Center, some of them have reached that really that hopeless state. I'll never get past this. I can't beat this. And, you know, one of the first things that I'll say is let's let's reframe those thoughts. You know, you've got to see. And I love to use visualization. I love to tell people, close your eyes and go to your happy place. Where is that? Is that the mountains or is that the beach? And so what's there? What do you smell? What do you hear? You know, because visualization, if you can use that as a coping skill, I've, I have for years. I have found it to be very handy for myself. I love that. So share with our audience some of your coping skills. I find um, when I was first starting to get better, um, and actually for me it came in layers because when the OCD got a little better, that's when I was really struggling with self-harm and sort of a sense of worthlessness and purposelessness. I identified with the OCD for so long. It was, wow, who am I now if I don't have this crusade? Um, so it seemed like things were coming up, constantly coming up. Um, and I found that my level of tolerance was very poor. With OCD, it comes on so quick. It was, I got to deal with this right now. So I was used to reacting very quickly whenever I had a feeling I didn't feel was tolerable. So it took a while for me to learn to slow it down. And that's where mindfulness was very helpful. Um, my therapist, I remember she said, try going on a walk. And I thought, you're nuts. If you think walking is <laughs> the cure for this, like that's not going to work. Um, and it, it didn't work. But her point was, sometimes we have to try things that are not going to get us down from a 10 to a 1, but just get us from a 10 to a 9. And so I, I learned for me that taking um, contrast showers, like hot, cold showers, was very helpful to get me down from like a 10 to a 9 or an 8. Um, I learned that walking on the beach was helpful because my rhythm, my heart rhythm seemed to match up with the waves a little bit. Um, I learned that meditation was not a good idea for me, but um, I would do this thing called 333. And, um, or other minute meditations, things like that, where you kind of like, you say three things you see, you wiggle three body parts, stuff like that. Um, 
So I did little mindfulness-based tricks, which I found to be helpful tools in the moment. And I did need to change them up over time. They would sort of lose effectiveness. So I just kind of had to find new ones and try more because um, I learned I'm not stagnant. I'm going to have to keep changing things and, and seeing what my body needs at the time because my chemistry will change, my mood changes, stress happens. So I'm going to need different tools as I progress. Um, but I find that some have stayed in place for me. Like I still think showers are my favorite, most helpful tool that I have. Um, and like you said, visualization, I do like guided imagery. I think that could be very helpful. Well, I love what you said about three, 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 because you can do that anywhere. You can do that in a conference room. You can do that in the grocery store. It's that's so, you know, so nice to be able to, you don't need certain tools. You don't need anything except your creativity. Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, and those are great. Sorry, continue. No, no, no. I, I was just going to say, I really like how practical that approach is because I've, I've studied a lot of different things and, you know, I looked at the tapping and I thought, well, you know, that's great. You tap on the, mer the points of meridian points of energy in your body. But can I do that at work? <laughs> you know, and well, some people may be able to. But for me, no, you know, and I'm not going to walk through the grocery store tapping on the different, you know, parts of my <laughs> face, my head. And so I love anything that I can use anywhere. Because unfortunately, it doesn't just wait to your your home in your room before it hits you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's why we need kind of like a toolkit. Um, because we never know where we're going to be or what's going on and, or what tool might be the most helpful at the time. So having a bunch of options, I think, makes a huge difference. Well, you know, it's so funny to use the term OCD party. <laughs> but yeah, well, you sound like you know exactly what that term means. <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure I know what it means, but um, can, I would love to hear. I, I love the term. Sounds great. Well, it's just a big old pity party, you know. Oh, <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. Or that's what I call it when they're like the can'ts. I can't do this. You know, I can't do that. I wished I could. I can't. The um. Never, I'll never, the shoulds, the must. I mean, to me, that is an OCD party. All you're doing is ruminating on the negativity, the negative thoughts, and just feeling really, really sorry for yourself. Yep. Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel like it was your fault that you had OCD? I did, especially in the beginning. I, I think it's logical to try to find a reason. Like the brain is always trying to source. And so I thought, okay, well, if I'm feeling this much anxiety and thinking these really, really dark thoughts, I must have done something. Like there's no other reason because it felt like a punishment. I interpret it as a punishment. And I think my parents also felt pretty guilty. Like what, what did we do? You know, what didn't we do? And so seeing them respond with guilt, I think I was like, oh, well, that's the, okay, guilt, got it. That's what we're supposed to think then. Um, not to blame them or anything. I think we all just felt pretty bad. Um, but I read a book, it's older now. I think it's by Ian Osborne. It's called Tormenting Thoughts and Secret Rituals. 
And it's about a guy um, who had really severe OCD, went to medical school and treated himself through the process. But the main premise of the book is it's not your fault and it's not your parents' fault. I used to recommend that a lot to parents, actually, who felt guilty um, if their kids were struggling with it. Well, that's great. I mean, that is great advice because we we love to blame ourselves. It's almost our first the first place we go if something goes wrong. And you're right. The brain does want a reason because the left side of the brain is logic. The right side of the brain is emotion. And we're always looking to be able to explain. We're writing those stories as we go. And sometimes we'll stop and we'll ask, I, I caught myself, why did I write that? You know, that's certainly not what I want, but that's just the way the brain reacts. So mm -hmm. it, it's really compelling for me to know that there are, there are things that you can do to deal with OCD and there's more out there than there's either therapy, pharmacology, which I'm not a real big supporter of. And now there's a third, the naturopathic medicine that's out there. And we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes, but real quickly, I mean, I, I have a natural bias against medication and I'm the, and I do own that. I know it's very effective for a lot of people. It does not work for me. You give me an antibiotic and I get a red rash on my face, oh. always my face. <laughs> oh no. But you know, you know a little bit more about that. What do you see as the dangers associated with some of the meds that are out there? Mm, um, I, I believe, and it was a tough pill to swallow, haha. -ha, but I came into medicine with a slightly more open mind about, okay, meds are sometimes helpful, et cetera, for psychiatric conditions. I, I've become a little bit more biased in that as well. And that's because it's hard for me to see psychiatric medications besides anything other than slow drip poison at this point. I know that sounds very intense, but the truth is um, there's very few people that I think benefit from a psychiatric medication and more people don't experience the benefit and then are swung into the most intense withdrawal trying to get off those medications. I mean, you don't have to get someone off heroin by tapering them down 1% like you do a psych med. It's um, it's something that most people are not informed about. And, uh, it's, I think they're the most addictive medications on the planet. Well, thank you for sharing that because I do know my bias is, is just comes by being naturally, but psych meds can be dangerous. And I think the learned at first we were hopeful that we had the magic pills, you know, yeah. Yeah. that could just fix everything. And I think the more that we, they were utilized, the more that we learned that, and oftentimes, it may take years to find the right medication. Mm -hmm. And what the side effects that you endure during that period of time, are you worse off than where you started? Is the question I ask. So we, I'll kind of leave that alone because I think everybody can come to their own conclusions. And when we come back from break, if people want more information on that, you know, I'll let you kind of point them in the right direction because that would be helpful for them. So stay with us. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We'll be back after these messages. 
It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many of us look forward to the holidays all year long. It is such a magnificent opportunity to get together with family and friends and decorate and give gifts and eat the most delicious food. But numerous people dread the holidays. As far as their weight, health, and exercise are concerned, they know they'll have so much temptation and chances to derail their healthy lifestyle. Many just resolve themselves into thinking that gaining weight over the holidays is a fact and there is no way to avoid it. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want you to embrace the holidays. Have a plan before you go to any dinner, party, or event and decide what you're going to eat and stick with it. Yes, there will be temptation, but you can overcome it. Stay with the plan and reap the benefits. You can contact us at fitnessminute at annettehammond.com. Does music give us chills? Goosebumps, or the medical term horripilation, occurs while listening to music. That's because music stimulates a reward pathway in the brain, encouraging dopamine to flood the striatum, a part of the forebrain activated by addiction, reward, and motivation. Melomaniacs or passionate music lovers can get the chills from songs they are familiar with as they anticipate that long-awaited chord at the climax of the piece. Music, it seems, affects our brains the same way that chocolate gambling and potato chips do. I think I may need to stick to chocolate and potato chips because I tried piano lessons and I felt like a goostrum noodle. What's a word for a person who dislikes practicing the piano? A mesodactocletist. It's marching Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So right before we took a break, we were talking about medication and and a lot of people that come to the Brain Performance Center, they come because either their medication's not working or they don't want to be on it. And so I'm always looking for new resources to share with people about how they can, if they're recommending medication, how can they check it out on their own? Do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah, the first thing I would do Uh, And this is what I tell all my patients to do. And I would say 95% of my patients, I'm actively tapering their meds. Um, So the first thing I say is, okay, I want you to write down on a piece of paper the reason you took the medication originally, like OCD, anxiety, whatever. And then write down how well on a scale of 1 to 10 that medication is working for you, how well it's accomplishing that goal. And then write down a list of any side effects or things you're not really happy with about the medication with. There's something about just looking at it on paper, and this will not tell you what to do, but it will give you an idea of what you're dealing with in front of you. And that may be a good starting starting place to decide if, hey, I want to stick with this, or maybe do you want to try something different? I love that approach. I mean, because what you're saying is think through it. Think about why you started it, and think about how it's impacted you, and and that's good. That's good logical thinking. You know that that's a really good approach. So for those that perhaps want to pursue something besides traditional meds or, you know, therapy and I and I'm 
that therapy is a big part of I do neurotherapy and psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So it's a big part of my of my being. But it's not the only thing that you can do. And you mentioned that you found your OCD related to a physical condition. So and that goes back to what I believe the brain, and the body are one, you cannot separate them. So for the, the third approach, the naturopathic medicine, let's talk a little bit about that. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love naturopathic medicine. I became a naturopathic doctor because it works so well for me. And I wanted, I, I also felt like it was kind of my duty, to be honest. I was like, if I was lucky enough to get better, I felt like it was kind of my responsibility to show people how to do that. Um, because people meet me now and they're like, there's no way. I mean, I had a woman recently uh, DM me on Instagram and she said, there's no way you had OCD as severe as you said. There's just no way. And I you're thought, too healthy. Like, you come out out of it yeah. too good, huh? Yeah, I did. And um, I thought, oh, my God, she thinks I'm lying. And um, I said, no, I, I did. I definitely had OCD pretty bad. Do you have OCD, too? And she said, no, there's no way um, you're lying. And I thought, OK, why is she saying? And then it hit me and I was like, oh, OK, it's because she doesn't think it's possible. She doesn't believe it. And I get it. Like when you have OCD that severe, it's almost annoying when you see people that are doing well because you're like, is I don't believe that's possible. So it's kind of threatening. It's really intense in that way. So for me, I thought there's too many people suffering with this. I, I need to, I just need to do this. Um, so I, um, I think it's one of those things where it can take some people a long time to figure out what's going on. It's a little bit of digging. Like for me, it was, you know, but I think that's what I like to do with naturopathic medicine for people that have anything mental health related. So anxiety, OCD, bipolar, um, psychosis, whatever I want to figure out. Okay, cool. Like, I'm sure that's partly psychological, but it would be negligent if we didn't look for an underlying condition that could potentially be making this worse. There was a bill that came out, um, maybe God, almost 12 years ago, it didn't pass. Um, but it was a bill petitioning for a new standard of care with schizophrenia. It was, we have to first check for celiac before treating. Um, because so many people with schizophrenia had a gluten intolerance or a celiac condition, um, gluten allergy, um, that could exacerbate that and make it worse or even directly cause it. So for me, it just seems, un it seems totally ridiculous to put someone on a lifetime of medications without first looking for if there's something else going on. When I love on your website, you've got a list of health concerns and, you know, yes, you've got addiction and ADHD, allergy, sensitivity, of course, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, I mean, gastrointestinal dysfunction. So I do hormonal imbalance. We could go on and on. But I do love the way that you come at it from the, the mental and the physical st standpoint. Oh, thank you. I feel like, like you said, the mind, body are one. And so I, it's hard to know all the time, you know, what caused what? What was the first thing that caused the problem. Sometimes it is chicken or egg. I don't really know. All I know is that 
we all as humans carry a bit of a toxic burden. Like we all have viruses and stress and oxidative damage and, you know, whatever else is going on. So eventually all of us will get to a tipping point of like, oop, this is too much. And then we question, okay, well, what do I have? Why am I suddenly allergic to everything? Like what's going on? In reality, we may not know exactly which one, but we do know that the body's out of balance. And this might sound a little bit on the hippie side, but I do kind of believe there's one disease. You know, I know we have different names for how it presents, but essentially what it means to me is something's out of balance. There's too much of something and not enough of something else. How do we dive in, figure out what that is and get people feeling a little bit better? Well, and I don't think that's on the hippie side at all. I mean, because let's face it, what is inflammation is the root cause of every disease. Mm -hmm. So, eh, I mean, it is what it is. And whether that inflammation is from mold or from Lyme disease or from a traumatic brain injury, it certainly it can come in all different forms and shapes. So someone that comes to your practice and says, you know, um, I want to get off my meds. I just, that's my goal. My goal is to get off my meds. What would you say to them? I would say, great, let's, let's do it in two steps. So I first want to know why they got on their medications and how long they've been on them, what else they've tried, et cetera. We'll go through all that. Um, but to me, we can't just take someone off a medication without looking for some underlying stuff that may have caused the original issue in the first place. Because if we take someone off a med and they're still dealing with the original problem, we haven't really improved their quality of life. We haven't really made anything better. All we've done is take away medication, which might be good for accomplishing one goal, but we're sort of just taking a sidestep. So I like to do a little bit of digging while we're tapering. And so that way we can, by the time we're done with it, get someone to a more transformative place where, okay, yeah, I'm off the med and I'm feeling a little better. I had um, a kid pretty recently, she was 14 um, and she had moodiness, anxiety, depression, was on max dose of Buspar, um, I think she was on another Benz, what Benzo was it? I don't remember now, but anyway, she's on a couple different medications. Nothing was really working. So anyways, after a little bit of work, we figured, okay, it's probably a food intolerance that's contributing to some of the original anxiety she had. So we checked, of course, she had a few different things. So once we got that sorted, worked on healing her gut, got the food picture, you know, under control. Um, then we started tapering the medications and, she started feeling a little bit more stable. So her mom asked me, well, what's the problem exactly? Like, where did all this go wrong? What started what? Um, and in reality, I said it was probably as simple as she had a food intolerance. It was probably causing some nutrient depletions that probably caused some of her anxiety, moodiness, depression, and then maybe threw off her home. I don't really know. But adding in the medications, unfortunately, can make things worse for some people because they will deplete different nutrients as well. So that's why they can compound the problem if that was the issue. Um, so we address both at the same time, which can make the experience a lot more doable. Um, and so for her, now she's feeling pretty stable because we treated the original problem and we got the psych meds out of the picture. There you go. That's a, that's a great approach. So, oh, you. Oh, and you mentioned nutrition. 
how do you, you know, how do you integrate that in? So with nutrition, it's so, I wish that we could, if there was a perfect diet, I don't have a perfect diet. Um, there's definitely different diets that are more appropriate for whatever someone's health goals are or their challenges. So if someone's tapering a medication, that diet may not be the same as if they're trying to, you know, work on their energy or lose weight or something. So for me, I try to really pay attention to whatever the goals are, whatever the challenges are. And of course, if they're on medications, that does matter. Um, there's pretty good research coming out of Australia that supports the concept that high sugar diets cause more anxiety and high fat diets reduce anxiety. Um, so there's certain things that we know to be fairly true across the board and that I've seen in clinical practice as well. Um, of course, we want to rule out intolerances if that's the case or sensitivities or foods that I think cause inflammation that maybe are not fully an intolerance. Um, but I do find that nutrition is a huge player because we can't get enough nutrition. Even if we had the perfect diet, we just can't do it. Our soil's too depleted. There's not enough mineral content anymore. Minerals are one of the biggest deficiencies we see now over vitamins. So even if we eat perfectly in every way, we're still going to be struggling to meet the requirements for optimum health nutritionally. So we have to make really thoughtful choices and that may change over time. So if somebody wants to practice a vegan diet, that may be appropriate or it may not be based on what's going on. And is that something that people understand? Because I, I have to be honest with you, changing lifestyle habits is one thing that the clients at the Brain Performance Center, that can be a struggle. No, I have to have fried chicken. I've had fried chicken every Sunday for the last 30 years, you know, and I'm like, it's killing you. Um, <laughs> so it's it's just so simple lifestyle choices. Are, have you experienced that? Oh, sure. And I mean, I was one of that, those people too. I was like, no, no, no. I've done this my entire life. Why is it causing a problem now? You know, so I totally understand. And I think part of it is that toxic burden. Eventually, we all reach a point where your body goes, nope, too much. I'm done. Here's your symptoms. Um, and I do encourage people to, if they can, be be sort of open-minded to the symptoms. Um, I know they're uncomfortable, but some people don't have any symptoms. And then, boom, they just get a crazy diagnosis one day. So if we're lucky enough to have symptoms now and it's your body's way of saying, hey, I'm, I'm upset about something, so do it. Do something about it. If we're lucky enough to at least get that signal, the best thing we can do is pay attention and go, okay, what do I need to change to make my body feel better? And it can be really hard, and people can feel deprived when they're told, oh, you can't eat this anymore, and you can't do that anymore. Um, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And I, I try to remind people that it will be a process, and we don't have to do it all in one day. And it, it's just something to try if we haven't tried it before. Um, because, and I'm sure you heard this, a lot of patients will say, like, I've tried everything. And I go, great, what have you tried? Well, uh, I tried Googling. Um, mm, yeah. And, like, not, the list isn't everything. But I think the sheer force and will of, like, I want to get rid of this feels like we're trying. And I've done that, too. <laughs> so it's a case of being really honest with yourself and going, okay, 
what are you willing to try and what are you willing to give up? Because if the goal is to get better and you could achieve that goal, um, are you willing to do things to make that happen? And that's, that's a tough question, particularly for people that are facing addiction issues. And addiction is a brain disease. I truly believe that. I don't think it's just a lot of bad choices, although I do think there's a lot of those involved. But I think that it is a brain disease. So and one of the things, you know, I always start off telling people there's four things that puts a brain in a dysregulated state. One is genetics, two is physical head trauma, third is emotional trauma, and fourth is stress. When Do you look at the genetic piece from your standpoint? Yeah, I think, and I love those, the four that you just mentioned. I think that's genius. Um, and I do think genetics do play a role. I think not as big a role as we want them to be. Um, I'd say about 15%, you know, of how it meant. I guess how it could manifest in somebody. Um, genetics, I believe, are relevant, especially epigenetics, meaning that we have a little more control of how they are affected by our lifestyle. Um, so, and, and in simple terms, it means you can turn genes on or off. Yeah, you can a little bit. Um, so, I do think it matters. Some people have a genetic predisposition to a certain state. Maybe they're more genetically predisposed to schizophrenia or. OCD, um, or, or maybe low vitamin D levels. Like we've seen that. So that's the case. So I do have to pay attention to that just to know where we need to give a little more focus. So they've proven now that the APOE gene is associated with a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. However, we've seen that the biggest effect we can have at staving off Alzheimer's is sleep hygiene. And that's because when you sleep, it's the only time your glymphatic system is working to clean those plaques out of the brain. So even if somebody has those genes, it doesn't mean they will have a certain condition. It just means they might be more predisposed, which to me is sort of a blessing in a way. It's like, okay, cool. Now we have that information. It means we have something to pay attention to. We have to work a little harder to make up for that potentially. But I think the biggest takeaway is that Genes are not a diagnosis. I mean, I, I I agree with that. I think that there are certain things that are genetic, but it's just like we were talking about addiction. It doesn't hit every generation in the family. You know, it'll skip. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you, do you look at the blood work? When I think of blood work, I think of traditional medicine. But I also think that, you know, the answer has got to be in the blood work, too. Oh, I think so too. I, I actually really do like doing blood work and I'll run a lot of traditional labs. I just read them a little bit differently. So the ranges for traditional blood work or conventional blood work um, were created a really long time ago. You know, um, I think almost a hundred years ago now. And that's when we were not eating processed food. Um, we were shorter, we were leaner, um, different air quality. We did not have the, we didn't have cell phones, you know, like everything was different. So the daily requirements suggested by the government were based on healthy ranges based on that time period. And it hasn't been updated since. So for me, it's a little bit difficult to simply look at a lab and, and just look at, oh, this value is too high or low. I care more about ratios and patterns. 
So I had a kid actually uh, a few months ago. He had um, very severe OCD. So he ran his thyroid labs and uh, just subclinical hypothyroidism. So still in range, but the ratio I didn't like. So we decided to treat that to optimize his thyroid function. And um, I didn't hear from him for a few months and I started getting a little nervous. I thought, oh no, maybe he didn't like me or something. So I called him and I said, hey, I want to check in on you. And he goes, oh no, I just canceled my appointment because the OCD went away. And I was ah. like, oh good, you. <laughs> but um, it was that simple. It was just the, the thyroid. And if we had only looked at it from, oh, it's severe hypothyroidism, now let's treat it. But it was just barely, barely low. So once we treated that, um, his brain said, cool, we don't have to yell at you with OCD symptoms anymore. We're quiet now. That is a, that's a great story. That really is. And that just shows that, you know, there's beauty in the, in tradition. It's just that you have to use your wisdom to get the most out of the traditional. And I'm amazed at how outdated so much of the process that we build on is in most of our systemic approaches to medicine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm, I feel the same way. Well, you know, we've got, a, we've got about six or seven minutes left. And, and let's think about what would you like the takeaways to be for our listeners? I mean, if they just so that they have some good takeaways that they can use, whether they have OCD or not. Oh, yeah, I would say... Recognize that whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever health issue, um, physical or mental, the soup's always hottest when it's first served. If you were just diagnosed, give yourself time to grieve. Um, If it's been a while and you're still having trouble, know that maybe you just have to reevaluate and try something different. Um, But the message I would stay far away from is that this is your lot in life. This is just how it's meant to be. Any of those kind of negative self-talk statements have to be challenged. Um, And that's where I think self-esteem is so important. And self-esteem gets crumbled during health issue problems. It does. So if we can do little things like learn different practices to self-love, that can be important. And I'm kind of against the concept of, oh, you have to love yourself before you can love somebody else. I don't think that's true. Um, I think it's kind of like a rescue dog. Like that little rescue dog, it needs to be showered with love to feel safe. It can't just start loving itself. Even with food and water, it won't do it. So same with people. There's a lot of ways to learn self-love. Maybe you could learn it from a book. Maybe you can feel it from a friend holding space for you. But there are many ways and no rules on how to learn to love yourself more. And loving yourself more is only going to make things better. It will never make anything worse. I love that. And I love that you talked about grieving, you know, give yourself time to grieve because when we think of grieving, we only do that when somebody dies, but it's, it's a natural, it's a healthy emotion and it's recognizing what you're going through and accepting what, what's going to change in your life. So I, I love that. That is great. Thank you. And you know, there's, um, I heard somewhere, I think it was David Kessler, he said, you know, we learn how to end things. We don't learn how to complete them because grieving in our culture is mostly chalked up to just give it time and space and time and space will only dull memories. It will not actually 
proactively heal anything. So that's why letting yourself feel in a safe way, maybe with guidance or not, and honor those feelings. Um, try not to increase the suffering by telling yourself negative self-talk during that process, knowing it will take a different amount of time for every person. Um, that can be a huge part of this process because it's not about, I need to heal so I can go back to who I was before. Because who you was before got sick, you know? It's about how do I heal so that I can be the person I was meant to be. That's great advice. That is, that's great advice. <laughs> so is there anything else that you want to share? Um, lastly, I would say there's no right or wrong in medicine. So if you find you're benefiting from a certain therapy or medication, awesome. If it's not working for you, change it. Um, there's no one size fits all with this kind of stuff. I, I think the benefit to natural medicine is it's not homogenized. It's not standardized. It's one of our criticisms, actually, is, oh, there's no standard of care. But hey, yeah, there's no standard of care. I'm treating the person, not the disease. So if whatever you're doing is not working, then maybe it's not a problem with you. Maybe it's a problem with the therapy. So try something else. That is great advice. That certainly is great advice. Well, you know, there's a lot of people out there that may say, well, how do I find this lady? How do I talk to this lady? Because uh, I believe that you do do telemedicine now, correct? I do, yeah. And if people want to find me, um, there's two ways to do it. Um, the best ways are, one, go to my website, which is drjuliabritz.com. And that's just DR for the doctor, and there's no dot or anything. So drjuliabritz.com. Or um, same for my handle on Instagram, drjuliabritz. Um, I post pretty much every day and, um, it's a really great way for me to communicate with people. I do live Q and A's to answer some questions probably twice a month. Um, and then I, I really don't schedule appointments online. I really want to talk to people first for a few minutes just to make sure I'm the best fit. Um, because it's gotta be good for both of us. I gotta make sure I can really help and that it's going to be a healing journey for both of us because, um, you know, we're both involved and it's a team effort. Well, I'd like to second that emotion. I, part of what I do at the brain performance center is I do a complimentary consultation because if I'm going to tell you that I can help you, I need to feel, I need to feel that I need yeah. to believe that. And how can you, how can you believe that if you haven't spoken to the person or, or you truly don't understand what their symptoms are? So, I think we share a lot in our attitudes towards creating change with mental health. And and again, at people that are looking, it's Dr. Julia and then B-R-I-T-Z.com. Because it's oftentimes it's harder. We think we know how to reach somebody and we don't. And I encourage everybody to just go look at the website. If I mean, just out of curiosity, there's a ton of good information on there. And look at the OCD diary. That, to me, that was an education about OCD. So there's lots of good stuff out there, and I encourage everybody to look at it. Or if you find you're at, in Las Vegas, maybe they could come do a person-to-person -person visit. Are you still are you doing that after COVID? I do, yeah. So I do have people that um, I have some people in Las Vegas, some people drive here from like Arizona, California too. So I do in person as well. Um, Nevada is pretty weird because it doesn't regulate naturopathic medicine. So, 
Well, um, but we know where we know where to find you. Yeah. And Dr. Julia Britt, I thank you so much for your time today. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.